When you go to an Asheville City soccer club game, you're not just watching soccer, you're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues. The South Slope Blues, they're amazing. This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham. The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City soccer so great. Longtime player Laura Greb. We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field every game. They've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles. Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two-month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. In North Carolina, mayors of cities count as just another vote on the city council, but residents and city staff expect their mayors to show leadership, vision, and an authority that might go beyond their constitutional purview. And when things go wrong, mayors are often the first target of outrage. What you'll see amongst all of us mayors, we are diplomats. We are representatives of our city. It is not our job to be a bomb thrower. We build consensus. I'm Matt Pikin, and you're listening to The Overlook, a daily podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. My guest today is Esther Mannheimer, who last year won her third term as mayor of Asheville. This is the first in a two-part conversation. Today, we talk about her path onto Asheville City Council and then the mayoral seat. We also talk about how she defines her leadership when the city manager has the legal authority to run the city and also whether the city manager and city council are tackling issues with the same urgency. Hey, Overlook audience, did you know that every month I produce more than 400 minutes of exclusive local content relevant to life in Asheville? The Overlook is a one-man band, well, along with the fantastic, generous guests I invite onto the show, but my point is I'm delivering something Asheville has never had before. If you value The Overlook, if it makes you a more informed and engaged citizen, consider joining my Patreon campaign. You can be a sustaining member for as little as five dollars a month. Your support would mean the world to me. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash the overlook podcast. This is part one of my conversation with Asheville Mayor Esther Manheimer. Tomorrow, we drill into how the city is approaching specific issues such as homelessness, addiction, and public safety. But I began today's conversation by asking Manheimer what issues were important to her when she first ran for city council 14 years ago and the issues that are top of mind for her today. First of all, thank you for interviewing me. I'm glad to participate in this process, and I've listened to a lot of your interviews, and you do a great job, so I'm excited to be a part of this. So I was traditionally trained, if you will, in in terms of what government's supposed to do and how you should be working with government or for government, 
And I spent time working in the attorney general's office. I worked for the state legislature for four years after law school. I even interned here with the city of Asheville, where we're sitting right now, on this floor, on this second floor in 19, I think it was 97. So I learned the nuts and bolts of what a city does and then what do elected officials do. So when I came to this job, I had moved back to Asheville in 2002 with my husband, who's a teacher at Inca High School. I was in private practice, but I wanted to get involved with the city. So I did what a lot of people do, and I served on a board, the Board of Adjustment. And then I finally decided that I would seek office. And at that time, I would say that the role of a city council in North Carolina had a lot to do with zoning and development, land use, those kinds of issues. It included and still does include basic services around picking up your trash and innovative things like recycling (laughs) at that time and providing basic services to your community. Those were the issues that were talked about on the campaign trail. Those were top of mind for folks. And those were the kinds of things that we started out with when I came into office in 2009. When you decide to run for council, I can't imagine anybody running for any elected position without thinking to themselves, I want to do something different than what I'm seeing. I can see my voice or my ethic or my mindset making a difference here. So what did you think you could do or how your voice would play a role on city council? When I first came into office, the way it happened was I applied for a vacancy. There was a vacancy on council and that was created in 2008 when Holly Jones moved from city council over to county commission. And so the council was charged with filling a vacancy for the remainder of her term. And I applied for the job and it came down to me and a guy named Kelly Miller, who at the time was the director of the tourism development authority. And guess who got it? Him. And that's how different of a city we were back then. What do you mean by that? How did that exemplify what kind of different city we were then? I think What's happened over the years is as tourism has grown and grown in our city, the discussion around tourism has changed from, oh, yeah, we're a tourist town and this is a positive thing in all regard to as tourism swallowing us up. And so there's this tension now around having imparted tourism economy and tourists themselves. And then what does that mean for locals? And I think today were the TDA director, whoever that is, at any time were to apply for a position on council, that would probably not be a supported application. But in 2009, that was not the sentiment. The the climate was very different. The conversation was different in the city. So when I wasn't selected, that just fired me up. And I filed and I ran and I won. And Kelly Miller did not get elected to council. And when you say you have this assumption that every politician who runs for office does it because there's something about them that's going to be this change maker or this difference or that a different thing needed to happen, and that's why you run for office, I don't necessarily feel like that was the case for me. I was more naive than I am today. (laughs) I'll say that. And I thought I had a lot to add. I ran in my first campaign, my slogan was the qualified candidate, which was fairly arrogant of me, but I did it because I was, I had a law degree, I had a master's in public administration, I had all of the education you might need or want to serve on a council. 
So for me, I felt like I had a lot professionally to contribute to this body. Now, how it all turned out was very different. What were you specifically naive about? How did you think your law degree, your experience, and that kind of professional background and education that you brought to the job, how did it either not matter or matter as much or differently in a way you could not have anticipated, even though you had interactions with city government at that point, city council wasn't a new entity for you. What was different? What were you naive specifically about? When I came into council, the role was very traditional in the sense that city council was focused on land use, growth, zoning, YIMBY, those sorts of issues. But cities have changed so dramatically in terms of their political conversations in the last several years, now it's so much more about social justice and systemic racism and policing and other topics that, frankly, at least within the white community, weren't being discussed. Everything has changed in terms of what people expect their cities to be talking about and addressing. I think it actually applies to all people who serve in political office in terms of what is their ability, appetite, willingness to embrace issues that voters want us to talk about today, that being issues around social justice and other issues that really just concern equity. It's not so much anymore just a conversation about what kind of ordinances are you going to adopt or what kind of budget are you going to have? They, there is this larger conversation about what was the city's role historically in generating systemic racism, inequality, and what is our role to write that going forward. That's not necessarily something, whether you're white, whether you're black, it's not necessarily something suited for everyone. And I think politicians who haven't been able to adapt and pivot or embrace these more complicated conversations just aren't doing the job anymore because that's not something they want to do. And I think this bleeds over into management as well. If you look at the traditional education systems for a manager, assistant city managers, department heads, they're taught nuts and bolts. Here's how you balance a budget. Here's how you have to comply with state law for contracting or bidding or whatever the case may be. And to say, okay, you know what, your job also now includes carrying out the policy goals of a council that's interested and focused on dealing with issues around equity, race, justice. How do you do that? I think I have seen managers who, you know, said, look, I learned how to do this job. And when I learned how to do this job, it didn't include all this stuff. And that's not something I'm cut out for or can do. And so I'm going to I'm going to get out of this work. And I've seen that happen. I think that's a, just a c continuing challenge. But, I mean, I think cities are adapting. Asheville's adapting, has adapted. So you were on council for four years before you ran for mayor. Now, was your decision to run for mayor different than your decision to run for council? Were different things going through your mind? Yes. So by then, as you mentioned, I've been on council for a while and I've been working well with my fellow council members. I was then chairing several of the subcommittees. I was already doing a lot to represent council. We were being threatened with water legislation to take the governance of the water system. I, I went down to Raleigh and testified in committee. 
So I was already getting a feeling, flavor, experience around what it might be like to serve as mayor. And at the time, Mayor Terry Bellamy was very gracious in making room for me to do all these things and to try out that role. And it was feeling like a pretty good fit. When you say try out for the role, what do you mean? I think if you're going to run for mayor at a time when you're already serving on council, you're, you have opportunities to, to experience what that role might be. There's lots of stuff that the mayor does that the rest of council doesn't do. Yeah, and I think people want to understand that a little better. And this might be diverging a little from the question, but I think since you kind of opened the door to this, I do think it's important for people and even for me to understand what in a city manager-led form of city government where the mayor's vote counts the same as any other city council person's, How did you define or see the role of mayor as distinctive on the body of city council? Okay, so that's a good question. So when I say there's a lot of stuff that the mayor does that the rest of council doesn't do, I don't mean in the sense that there's some unilateral authority of the mayor. There's not. You're right. It's just one vote among seven. There's very little distinctive authority that the mayor has from a technical or a legal standpoint, you can declare a state of emergency and then you have lots of different powers, but that's a pretty unusual situation. What I mean is that uh, when you are the mayor of a city in North Carolina, and this is specific to the way we're structured in North Carolina, where it's a strong manager form of government, the mayor's role is ceremonial, but you're also a representative, a diplomat. You are a communicator for the city. So the mayor can and should and will become parts of organizations like the Metro Mayor's Coalition of North Carolina, or which is not a requirement. It's not in the job description, but it's a good idea if you're going to be mayor that you step up and take on those roles. There's also lots of things that the community expects you to do that mayors do. You're the liaison to speak to all sorts of student groups. I've hosted many different groups here from pre-K to college students. And it's interesting to me how the community knows very well what the mayor should be doing because they invite you to participate in it. So the mayor's the one who speaks at Rotary Club on the state of the city, or the mayor is the one that participates in the Economic Development Coalition meetings or the chamber meetings or I mean, it could be anything, the Boy Scouts of America, you name it. But all these things that you're mentioning, or most of these things, are ambassador-like yes, roles. Yes, that's right. That is right. And so I'm wondering, is there a role or is there an expectation, whether it's on the outside looking in or from the inside, even among council and city staff, that the mayor plays some kind of leadership role within the council? Yes, yes. And that, okay. So again... There's not like a rule book or a job description that tells you exactly what it should be or how it should work. But absolutely, a lot of my time is spent talking to people, meeting with people, and just trying to get consensus around something. I probably talk to the chair of the county commission, Bronnie Newman, once or twice a week. We have meetings periodically with the city and county manager and me and the chair of the commission or different staff from the bodies. So we're, we are constantly talking and communicating about things that are either going to come to council or happening in the community or things that we're collaborating on in the community. And that is totally discretionary. A mayor could bury their head in the sand 
and not do any of that stuff, or a mayor could do a lot of that stuff. And it's changed over the years. As we talked about, I'm now in my 14th year in elected office. Everybody in my senior administration, in the city's senior administration, came in after me. And the next longest serving person on council is Shanika Smith, and she's in her sixth year. So as that time has passed and there's been staff turnover or council member turnover, I've felt a greater and greater role, the pressure, not so much pressure isn't quite the right word, but just taken on a greater role in that, in what you're describing. More after this. It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market, but the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook. Imagine you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony. Behind the scenes, your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray. Welcome to A God in the Waters, the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer David Brendan Hopes. Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters, May 9th through 18th at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to thesublimetheater.org. I began the second half of this conversation by asking Esther Mannheimer how her leadership style has evolved during her entire time as mayor. In North Carolina, because we don't have a strong mayor system. So in, in states where you see a strong mayor system, the mayor is constantly unilaterally declaring things, right? They're starting a new initiative or they're launching a new department. They don't even go to the council meetings. It's, it's like an afterthought what's happening on the council because they are running the city. They are the CEO and the chair and everything else. And that is not how it works in North Carolina. And to be clear, that's statewide in North Carolina. Yes, that it's statewide. So whether you're the mayor of Charlotte, Lyles, whether you're Nancy Vaughn in Greensboro, where you're Bill Sappho in Wilmington, whoever you are, you have to work with a full council. And I think what you'll see amongst all of us mayors is we are consensus builders. We are diplomats. We are representatives of our city. It is not our job to be a bomb thrower. We build consensus. We help facilitate progress within our council and further the initiatives that are shared amongst council and help work with the staff to make those things possible. Um, we don't, we can't, it would be ridiculous of me to just unilaterally declare things since I have no unilateral authority to do that. Right. Yet I also think probably some people or many people in the community expect a mayor to have that role to sure. be a policy setter in a sense, or at least to try to have an agenda. You probably didn't enter office and or entertain because that's the statutory bedrock of North Carolina, any set of an agenda of what you wanted to accomplish as a mayor, or have you? Are there things that you felt 
felt or do feel that it's important for you to accomplish as a mayor, as opposed to simply a member of city council? If you widen the umbrella of what a mayor means to a city, I see it as my job to set a tone for leadership in the city. My constituents expect me to be stable. They expect me to be sound, make sense, not be erratic. So I think it's very important to have steady and strong leadership. Now, within what a city can do in North Carolina, which I am painfully aware of in terms of what the authority is, yes, I certainly have thoughts and ideas about what direction we should be going in, how we should be getting there, but I work with a full council to make that happen. And one thing that is important to me is that when you see me vote, And most mayors in North Carolina don't even have a vote unless it's a tiebreaker. But I get to vote unusually. This is unusual for Asheville. I I didn't know that. Yes, I get to vote on everything. Right, but but I didn't know that was unusual. Very common for the mayor to only have a tiebreaker vote. Okay. But you will see me almost always voting with the majority. And the reason is not because I made up my mind at the last minute. It's because the thing that's now on the agenda that is up for a vote is at a place where I'm comfortable with it. And that's not to say that I have authority to make something all by myself and change it how I want it to be. But if something is going in a direction that I don't think makes sense for us, or I think is going to be problematic or a bad idea, I will work with a council to make sure that we get something before it comes to a point that we have to vote on it. If I'm having to vote against it, then I didn't do my job before we even voted on it. You just said something that if you voted in the minority of something, that means you didn't do your job. Define that a little more because... So there are mayors that get on the outs with their council and they are, you know, they're the minority one or two votes. And to me, if that happens and it can happen in cities, you then aren't having a well-functioning governance system from an elected standpoint. Again, if you're in a mayor strong city in another state, and I know we have a lot of people that move to North Carolina and they came from a state where there's strong mayors and they are very perplexed by our system. I think it's a totally different ball game because mayors can, in those strong mayor cities, mayors can unilaterally do things. And I and no, and mayors in North Carolina cannot. So where we exercise our strength as mayors in North Carolina is around consensus building. You touched on something that I hadn't planned to talk about, but I think it's interesting. You mentioned if by the time something gets to you, to the council to vote, if you're voting in the minority on something, you didn't do your job. And I'm wondering, how do these discussions happen to where there is a consensus. I know at one point there were closed door sessions, information sessions, I guess, is the council was regarding them as. And the, the check-in sessions. The check-in sessions. About, which the county calls three by threes and we called check-in sessions. Yes. Yeah. And those weren't in public view from what I understand, right? No. So how valuable to you were those check-in sessions? And now that they're not happening, at least not in the way of being behind closed doors, Is that a loss for the city council? Do you feel that not having those is taking away some of the time that you and your council members were getting to a consensus on certain subjects? There's pros and cons. 
And I appreciate that in North Carolina, city councils and county commissions, for that matter, have pretty stringent public meeting rules, apparently not as stringent as some states like Florida. But but of course, we can't privately meet as with a quorum, meaning a majority, because if we're going to deliberate or decide on something, we need to have a publicly noticed meeting. I think that's what you're getting at in terms of the background on that. And the concept of transparency, that all elected right. officials do public's business in public view. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And I support where we are. I have supported having what you, what we now call gender reviews. They're fully in public. I think a lot of councils do it that way, and I support doing that. I think the result is that we have some council members that don't speak very much. Why is that? <laughs> I guess I'm naive about this. Why wouldn't they speak as You mean they would speak more if the public wasn't there? Why? You and I are having a conversation. We're here. This is very public. It'll be posted. I'm comfortable with that. I'm sure it'll draw a lot of criticism one way or another, or maybe not. I don't know. But not everyone's comfortable with that. And I think your response would be, then why run for office? That's exactly yeah. that was and, my question. And, and I, I will say this. If you look at a state legislature, for example, you are not going to be privy to almost any conversation drafting legislation. It is not done in public. And in fact... The Democrats caucus privately, the Republicans caucus privately, they allow very little public comment in their committee meetings, and they constantly show up with redrafted legislation that just appears out of nowhere. It's called a committee substitute, and nobody knows who drafted it or how it came to be. A lot of people would suggest that even these legislators are not the ones writing this legislation. It's lobbying groups. Sure, absolutely. I'm just pointing out the dichotomy where you have this format that is almost never questioned, frankly, at the legislature until something horrible happens, anti-abortion legislation that's passed without anyone being able to weigh in on it. No one stops and says, I didn't even hear you review that topic, even though you weren't even voting on that topic, and it should all be done in public. And Congress, for example, one of the things you hear people in Congress say is it used to be in the old days, we went to lunch together and we you know, talked about issues and it was more productive and we had personal relationships. So on the one hand, I think a city council and a county commission has the benefit of living in the same community. We can have lunch together. We can have coffee together. We can talk about issues. We can get on the phone with each other and talk to each other, which we do, and which is totally fine. Generally, it's one-on-one. And it is a laborious process because you got to call everybody and hear their kind of raw, real feelings about something and then put that together on these more controversial topics to figure out how to navigate them. So to answer your question, the way we used to do the check-in that were private, we would have three members. It would be two council members and me. And I would sit with the staff for an entire day, twice a month, and hear the entire, all the agenda and every other item under the sun reviewed two council members at a time. And I will tell you, the council members were very frank and... It allowed them a safe place, if you will, to say things. And there are also things that people need to say that are not appropriate to say in public. For example, let's say there's we're going to be voting on funding under our, our program where we fund nonprofits for kinds of work they do. You might have a group that's really stumbling. Maybe they're in the middle of a lawsuit. Maybe they have an executive director change. Maybe there's something that you don't want to say about them publicly, and they wouldn't want you to say about them publicly. 
the problem that you and I are talking about where some people don't feel comfortable speaking in public is a very real problem. That's just what it is. Oh, I get that. But you were right when you said, oh, you probably will have the question, why would they run for office? I, that was my initial thought was because to run for office puts you out there in a very public way. Anyway, that, I appreciate your response to that. Talk about the relationship between the city council and the city manager. The analogy, I guess, would be like a board of directors and an executive director or something like that, or a board of directors and a CEO. And that's probably as close an analogy you can get. I've been thinking about this question a lot because it's obviously generated a lot of conversation, which is really fascinating to see because people used to never talk about the role of city council versus the manager. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. But our managers all go to school to become managers. And they, a lot of them go to Chapel Hill to the school of government where I went to school or other programs. They've got them at Western and app and, and they are trained to become managers or department heads, but public employees, they are not trained to become politicians. So it's a very, it's a professional training, if you will. I remember when I went through it at Chapel Hill, you were trained how to interact with employees. You were trained how to give, speak at a press conference. You were trained how to do all sorts of things that a manager might have to do, but it wasn't with the pizzazz, if you will, of what's expected of a politician. So it's a different, it's a very different job. So for me, I see myself as a go between council and staff, and I'm very careful to make sure that I am not telling staff to do something substantively that's coming from just me. I recognize that my authority, if you will, is embedded in the seven votes on council. And so no one on council can just direct staff to do something all by themselves. So what I see myself more as a, a kind of a facilitator, if you will, and staff might reach out to me or I might reach out to them for more process guidance. Okay. Council wants to do X, Y, Z. Do you think we should bring that up at this meeting on Tuesday or should we wait and do a work session the next week? Those kinds of questions and discussions will happen behind the scenes where I'm trying to just help them understand what the expectations of council might be around something, or they might be telling me kind of some of the constraints or some something they're dealing with and give them some advice about how to move forward. But again, I'm very careful that I am not directing them to do something that the full council hasn't already supported because I need council to have faith and trust in me in carrying out the wishes of the whole council. And I need staff to feel comfortable that I'm not telling them to do something council hasn't already blessed or said is fine to do. But where's the city manager fit in all that? And how does that relate to what the priorities of a city manager? They're not answerable yeah. to a body politic. The manager is trying to carry out the policy initiatives that the council has set. And we do that annually through our retreat and we're about to do a work session where we refine those goals down. And then the manager's job is to take those policy goals and make them actionable and to get the departments to carry out these policy goals of council. There are also a lot of other things that aren't even covered by these policy goals that are just 
day-to-day operations of a city that, that a manager's got to work on. Some of it we might not even know about and might not ever need to know about. Some of it she might initiate and bring to us that she thinks furthers our policy goals, but in, in an actionable way that the staff came up with. I guess I've read and heard some general criticism around our current city manager around the pace or lack thereof of her taking on certain issues and being they I guess I've heard they want her to be more actionable and take deeper strokes into different issues that are affecting the city. And they feel that she's not doing that. And I'm wondering, do you and the city council, the rest of your council colleagues, do you sometimes want to operate at a pace that's different than the city manager? I think where we might be getting crossways on this conversation is around the some sort of intention, implied intention about, for example, pacing. We as a council have stated very important to us to deal with certain initiatives, for example, downtown safety, cleanliness, different issues. My sense is that we would all like it to have been done yesterday, including the manager. But we have staffing limitations, staffing shortages. We've had to contract for cleaning services for with companies that will clean up biohazards, meaning needle waste, for example. But there's not a line out the door of these contractors that will do this work. So it's not that we're not all on fire about getting this done immediately, including the city manager and the management staff. My understanding and my perception of it is we are short-staffed just like everybody else. There are not enough contractors out there to do all the things we need to do as fast as we want them to be done. We are obviously short-staffed in the police department, and restaffing the police department is going to take a tremendous amount of time. So we're trying to figure out alternative ways to try to take some of the load off the police department. So I think my feeling about pacing and urgency is that it's shared. The constraint to me is more the issue around staffing and contracting rather than, and that has a couple levels to it, right? Because you have internal staffing shortages, but those are also the people that need to get contractors on board to do the work. And then you have contractor shortages. So it is, it's been a tough time to try to go from zero to 60 here. That's just the first in a two-part conversation with Asheville Mayor Esther Manheimer. Tune in tomorrow to hear her thoughts about how the city is tackling homelessness, addiction, public safety, and other issues facing the city. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are online by 6 a.m. every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our newsletter at podavl.com. And please support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theoverlookpodcast. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.